unfortunately though, I don't know what it was. There's a small part of me that never, ever throughout all of my racing, I just felt like I should have been working. So I can surmise where that comes from, but I'm not going to go there. But yeah, there's just all this like, oh gosh, like, is this enough? And looking back, I wish I didn't have that because probably really gotten away of my mental focus and whatnot. But yeah, so I did that through, yeah, like five years of racing. But throughout that, I kind of slowly more and more got into the sports nutrition. And by the end of it, that's why I stopped. It was one of the big reasons I stopped because it's kind of this decision of, wow, I've picked up this business. I've started really growing it. And actually I'm, I'm getting busy. Cycling's not paying me. Now I'm in my 30s and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, especially, gosh, if I was, you know, I wasn't good enough to be on, let's say, T-Mobile. So I wasn't getting this paycheck. If I was, of course, that probably would have changed my mind. But, but the reality was I wasn't. So it was a decision of, hey, you know what? It's, it's time to move on and, and try and build this business. So that's, that's how I did that. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. Okay, so we are here with Ann Guzman, a sports nutritionist, lifelong learner, um, obsessed with sports science and everything health-related. She is a sports nutritionist who got her start after racing in the pro cycling peloton for many years in Canada. Um, She's back to school now, getting her master's in health sciences with a focus on bone health and cyclist. Um, And while she understands the nitty gritty and the details in science, she also knows how important it is to be able to translate that science into um, practical and actionable tips for all of us. So super excited to have Ann on. She's also one of the first people, first experts to join ProKit when we were starting our beta and quickly created a collection on performance, nutrition, and mindset that has become one of the go-tos on the platform. So um, has been along for the ride there. So Anne, welcome to The Common Threats. Thanks, Dave. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Uh, So I start with my hardest question of the day every time, which is, (laughs) what did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, wow. Actually, I had... uh... I took it upon myself to go to our local Montreal bagel bakery and I bought a couple dozen bagels just to, you know, with the current times, reduce my contact. So froze them all up and yeah, pulled one out this morning and actually had just eggs and cheese on a bagel. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That sounds it was good. awesome. What's, yep. what's your, uh, do you have a standard breakfast or is that, does it kind of rotate by the day? I'm a t- I'm typically a smoothie person, actually. My my normal routine would be to get up and drive to school. So I yeah, I generally just make a smoothie, peanut butter, banana, hemp hearts, soy milk, or yeah, a frozen fruit. But 
it's kind of an easy way to get like 20, 30 grams of protein. So I just start the day like that usually. There we go. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's start a little bit just with your, your story on, you know, getting into cycling and how that led you into sports nutrition and kind of where you are now. Sure. So I was actually a wrestler in university, which came by surprise. I, I never had any intention of uh, becoming a freestyle wrestler, but that happened. And then did that for four years. And when I graduated university, I got into the uh, health club industry. So I was a personal trainer, running fitness centers, teaching spin classes. So that was kind of the first time I really got into spinning or anything like that. I used to just take my dad's bike when I was a kid and go riding, but not, I never was a cyclist by any means. Um, yeah. And then I was taking a lot of spinning classes at a local bike shop gears. And one of the two owners, uh, Kevin, Kevin and Ira, they're amazing. One day he was just like, wow, you're really into this. Like you should consider bike racing. So it's, you know, in the typical Guzman fashion, I bought a bike and hired the national team coach, which looking back is absolutely hilarious. Like who was I to just buy a bike and literally didn't wait a week. I found this woman, Denise Kelly online. And next thing you know, I show up at her house, we have a chit chat and here's this complete rookie riding with all these amazing professional riders and local elite pros and whatnot. I sucked, Dave, I couldn't. <laughs> I was so bad. I had no idea what I was getting into. I could barely ride like an hour and a half. And, you know, looking back, it's hilarious because these people were so amazing. So I got really lucky. I got thrown into this community immediately of like Amy Moore and Mike Moore. And she was racing for like T-Mobile at the time. So I just learned to ride from all these really experienced people. I laugh at it because now a lot of people learn to ride on Swift right? So you don't, you don't get introduced to the skills and the etiquette of bike riding. So I was really lucky because I just got immersed in that. And they were so amazing. So I would get dropped on every ride and <laughs> someone would come back and push me back to the middle of the group. And that just lasted for a long time. I remember my dad, my dad was a running coach. And he said to me one weekend, because every weekend I would get back from these three hour rides and I would literally, this sounds so bad, but I would hang out in bed. I was trashed. And he said to me, finally, you know, did you ever consider that maybe these people are just riding and you're racing every weekend? <laughs> it's like, now I can look back and think, wow, what was I thinking? Now, having said that, obviously it helped me improve and not just physically, but just learning how to ride my bike within a group and having all these people who just took the time to teach me how to move within a group and anything you need to learn about cycling, which obviously you're still learning a decade in, but yeah. And then from there, I just started racing and same thing. I was getting lapped, not once, like twice, sometimes three times, <laughs> but you know, I don't know what it is. I think it's pretty ingrained in my family, but that was not discouraging. If anything, I was just like, well, I better keep training. I need to get better. And and so I just kept training and then eventually you're right up there and then eventually you're racing for the podium. And, you know, that, that took some time. I'm not going to say that happened overnight, but I think it probably happened a little more quickly because I was surrounded 
by all these amazing people. We would train together and we did everything together. So it was, it was a community that unfortunately I, I feel like here that's not, that doesn't happen as much anymore. Like a lot of, it seems to be a lot more indoor riding and maybe because of the safety of texting and driving and whatnot in the winter. Like we used to ride in minus 15 for four or five hours, but now you just, I don't even have that confidence anymore to, I mean, I'm not that hardcore anymore either, but I don't have the confidence to be out there with the drivers either. And where um, are so you from, in Canada? Just for people who. Um, I'm in Hamilton. So that's about 45 minutes from Toronto. So Toronto is probably more recognizable to people. Great. So from there, I just started racing and kept racing and racing. <laughs> and then of course, you know, you want to race bigger races and, the next thing you know, I was racing just the NRC circuit in the States for the most part. And yeah, ended up starting with Kenda Tires, the American team, and then uh, actually a local team first from my, my second coach. And then eventually Canada had a UCI, two UCI teams. And so that was great. You know, it, it allowed us just an opportunity to get to some more some bigger races and, and get some support and, and how many of the women that you raced with are still at it? Yeah, it's actually a really good point because so Lex Albrecht is one of them. So she's still at it. Uh, Joanie Caron is still racing. Uh, I think like Veronique Labonte, uh, is still riding, but not racing. Um, yeah, I think that might be it. I mean, uh, a couple of them have had, some kids now like two or three and then Denise Ramsen I mean she's gone on to become a lawyer so yeah it's actually kind of neat to see you know where everyone's gone and do you get do you all keep in touch no I mean there's always Facebook I talk to Mariah on Skype sometime Lex and I keep in touch um but yeah not not as much as we'd all like to but uh our soignere actually moved to Toronto MC and she's just fantastic so I've, I've seen her a handful of times and yeah, but I think I was really lucky because we had such a great time and it was such a good community. So I definitely miss that. Like it's kind of irreplaceable. And I think like a lot of sports, it's what's so not addictive, but so attractive. It's just, it's like your new little family. So yeah, it's hard when you move on. So before we transition to this, uh, the sports nutrition side of, of how that transitioned out of there, um, what was life like? racing bikes like what was what was a year like how was it structured yeah I was originally a pharmaceutical rep when I was racing so um sales and uh, cardiovascular health and, and bones so it was uh, a great job and I left that to go back to school so I was racing more and I was back in school taking some courses and when I started racing Full time, I actually st- actually started working at Starbucks. So I stepped away from like this career in pharma and thought, I'm going to give this a go. I was 27 years old when I bought my first bike, so that's a lot older than when most people pick up a new sport. Uh, so at that point, I'm around 30, and I decide I'm, I'm going to give this a go and, and see if I can race full time. So from January to September. And that wasn't going to work with a typical career. 
And I think slowly within there, I started doing some sports nutrition because it was something I was always learning about, but not that far back. So I, I had to get just a job that could start and end. And so, yeah, I walked away from like a career to more of something more temporary. And I, I did that. I had some small contracts with Princess Margaret Hospital and sales for the ride to conquer cancer. So I would find these jobs that I could do from September to January. And then I would race the rest of the season, like full time. So I was lucky to be able to do that. And uh, unfortunately, though, I don't know what it was. There's a small part of me that never, ever throughout all of my racing, I just felt like I should have been working. So I can surmise where that comes from, but I'm not going to go there. But yeah, there's just all this like, oh gosh, like, is this enough? And looking back, I wish I didn't have that because I probably really got in the way of my mental focus and whatnot. But yeah, so I did that through... Yeah, like five years of racing. But throughout that, I kind of slowly more and more got into the sports nutrition. And by the end of it, that's why I stopped. It was one of the big reasons I stopped. Because it was kind of this decision of, wow, I've picked up this business. I've started really growing it. And actually, I'm, I'm getting busy. Cycling's not paying me. Now I'm in my 30s. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, especially, gosh, if I was... You know, I wasn't good enough to be on, let's say, T-Mobile. So I wasn't getting this paycheck. If I was, of course, that probably would have changed my mind. But, but the reality was I wasn't. So it was a decision of, hey, you know what? It's, it's time to move on and, and try and build this business. So that's, that's how I did that. So the backdrop to, to that business, um, what type of clients um, do you, have you typically worked with over the years? Well, I started a lot with uh, Peaks Coaching Group. So Hunter Allen and Tim Kuzik were running Peaks Coaching Group. And um, I'm trying to think how I first got intertwined with them. Can't actually remember, but I think it was 2010. I went to one of their camps and started doing sports nutrition. So that was kind of not pro cyclists, more, I'd say a lot of, 30 to 40 year old cyclists just wanting to join these camps and do mountain climbing and sometimes communities of people from certain areas that actually hired Peaks Coaching to do a camp. So we we're doing camps. We did one up in Canada and Sonoma. So we did a couple in California. And that was kind of the clientele I started with. And through Peaks, you know, I would start getting some more elite racers. So maybe some people that Hunter was working with at the time. And then eventually I always, I've always kept actually that masters or, or even like 16, 17 year old clientele. And then of course I, I'd start to get some more professional athletes. So there's always been a mix, which I kind of appreciate. They're, they're actually really different um, populations to work with. But I'd say it started more with uh, the average like masters cyclist from these camps and a big range of abilities there as well. So a large variety of people have had the opportunity to work with. Yeah. And for people who haven't worked with, you know, a coach or a sports nutritionist or someone who's like specialized in their, their field, 
I mean, one of the things I've really enjoyed from getting to know you is learning how personalized that is. And, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people like go to the self-help books or the, the, the quick fix things. Right. But the, the layers of actually understanding nutrition, how it affects performance and, and then how it is personalized to you. Like, what does that process look like? Like when people, a pro athlete comes to you, maybe they've never worked with a sports nutritionist. What are those first couple weeks or sessions look like? Like, how do you get to know someone or maybe what are you looking for? Yeah. I mean, again, I would like you just pointed out, it's so individual and I think there's a bit of a misconception that elite athletes are immune to, I guess, inadequate eating. But uh, that's not the case. So a lot of professional athletes might have a really great diet. A lot might not. I feel like there's a lot more tension on that now. But really for me, and, you know, there might be different opinions on food journaling, but for me, it's everything because I really want to see where somebody is coming from so I can help them make the changes. And without seeing where they're coming from, it's hard to make directional changes where they need to be made. So I see it as the athlete being part of the process. I mean, I want to see a food journal. And I know that that is time consuming. It takes some commitment. On the other hand, if someone's willing to put that commitment in, then they're willing. It's something they want to do. If someone right off the bat's like, I don't want to do that and just have to question, you know, well, how serious? How serious? Yeah. Now, there's always an exception to every rule. So if if I know that, let's say, someone has had disordered eating or eating disorders, I'll possibly work around that in a certain scenario because the last thing I, I'd want to do is um, make that worse by having a focus, let's say, on calories. You know, even though I don't really work in calories, still that. But for most people. Um, being able to see that that way I can see how many, you know, if start with the big picture, how many carbohydrates, proteins, you know, look at the macronutrient, I can see the micronutrients in a food journal. And not without its errors, though, right? Because food journaling, there's a lot of potential for what I would call the halo effect. So you start eating better, because someone's looking at it, you start eating better, because you're writing it down maybe there's some shame and you don't want to write everything down. So when I meet someone first, I mean, I really just try and get to know them a little bit as well and bring across that I'm not judging anything. I don't eat perfectly, right? If you're going to eat like 10 lint chocolates, fine. Like it's totally fine. Just write it down. Don't worry about it. Let's just see where you are. Maybe that's your thing. I mean, burning 5,000 calories a day, maybe. So, I mean, I think it's important that athletes know, no matter what they're eating, that they're not being judged. And really, I just want to help them improve their health and their performance. And it's not about, oh, don't have this or don't have that. In fact, a big right. part of my approach is, is to focus on what they want to add versus on what to take out. Hmm. So I often don't say, oh, you know, you should take that out. It's really rare that I say that because I'm so focused on what to add in that sometimes it just pushes other things out. And I'm not a big fan of good food, bad food kind of conversation. 
Um, so yeah, to answer your question, I generally want to see where they're coming from. What's their life like, right? Are you a parent, master's athlete with three kids and a full-time job? That's really important for me to know. So I might get your food journal and see some interesting patterns, but because I know that you're a nurse doing 12 hour shifts, like they're going to have a lot more meaning in that context. Are you an athlete that has a lot of time to prepare your food? I mean, that's a completely different scenario that we can take advantage of. So everyone's so different. And yeah, like I think you alluded to a couple minutes ago, it's just pretty difficult to have a cookie cutter approach. It doesn't mean there aren't some foundational things everyone can work on, but yeah, for me to say, okay, everyone should follow this. I mean, it just doesn't make sense because everyone's context and their lives are so different. Yeah. And speaking of context and lives, we should start with, you know, we're living through the COVID-19 pandemic right now. So um, by the time this podcast even gets out, everything will be different. It seems like it's changing by the minute. So, you know, it's hard to even talk about it uh, in like one time frame. But I think everyone, regardless of when they listen to this, that's going through it, they're, you know, people are thinking about immunity and their health, people's mindsets um, and habits are being stretched to the limits. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so, you know, you've been around this for a long time in just health in general. So I don't know, what are some of the things you would think about for, for people who are just trying to get through, you know, we'll get into like the actual you know, I've seen a lot of people are out exercising or indoor exercising even more than they were before. So mm-hmm. we'll get into the performance and nutrition stuff too, but just overall health. Why don't we just start with food? Like, how do you think about food and, you know, maybe maintaining some good habits or building some new ones through this rather than the other way around? Yeah. I mean, it's again, like context is such a big deal here, but there's definitely some things that, you know, I spoke with someone yesterday who just wanted to talk about stress eating, right? So are you someone that's stress eating all of a sudden because you're home or, or you're not eating, right? So there's, there's these different, like, I actually noticed the first week and a half that, oh my gosh, I, I haven't eaten. I never do that. It was just like, I'm suddenly home. My daughter's got no daycare and it's 11 o'clock. I'm like, oh my God, I'm hungry. So I think this has really thrown a lot of people's eating patterns off. And that's a big deal. I think that if you're in that scenario, it's actually probably worth it to schedule some eating as silly as that sounds, because if you're finding yourself, um, you know, the one, so let's say you're someone that doesn't eat when you're under stress and you're barely eating throughout the day. So that's probably going to lead to you overeating at night. On the other hand, in the spectrum, like maybe you're stress eating, you're eating all day. And now your environment, which is suddenly possibly your home, but maybe it's not, maybe you're at work a lot more and you're in a hospital and you're picking at food that is being brought into a room or unable to prepare like wholesome meals. Like there's so many scenarios. So let's assume you're home. Let's just talk for the people who are suddenly home a lot versus those who are suddenly working 24 hours a day. I think a big one is like right away, everything that was frozen got taken off the shelves. 
right? So obviously there was some panic. I don't know, were your grocery stores probably the same yes, as ours? empty. Right. And I mean, I remember I came home and I thought, okay, so my daughter's favorite vegetable is actually frozen peas, right? So, so we actually buy frozen peas all the time. I remember going to the grocery store thinking, okay, all these people just bought frozen peas. Who might never eat their frozen peas? <laughs> <laughs> we actually want frozen it's, it's peas. It's there with the toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but really, I mean, now that it, it's settled a little, I think people are realizing I have to speak to a budget. So I don't know, you know, socioeconomics of your listeners, but there's a budget factor here too. So now you're suddenly home. Um, you don't want to go to the grocery store as often. You probably bought some frozen food. And I think it's important to say that we can stay healthy with frozen produce, right? I'm actually, it really bothers me when I see influencers kind of suggest that everything has to be fresh or inorganic because it says, so what if it's not? What are you saying if it's not? And that that's never sat well with me because everyone's not going to be able to have the luxury and economic you know, situation to buy fresh and organic. So yeah, you can still get nourishment from frozen produce and it's going to be a really important thing right now. And it's something that I've spoken to a couple of people about on how, how to just have the foods that you can make meals with at home with frozen foods. And you can totally do it. So there's, you know, a couple staples that I think are good to have in the house right now. Quinoa, oatmeal, um, pasta, you know, there's whole wheat pasta now, there's lentil pasta, there's all these different types, uh, brown rice. So a lot of bases. And then, you know, you can make Mexican stuff, right? So you can get frozen Thai vegetables, you can get frozen, you can get frozen everything. You can get frozen avocado, thaw it and make the guacamole. I mean, you, you can really work with a lot of these foods to make, you, know, you can get frozen chicken, you can get refried beans. So you can, you can create a lot of simple Mexican type meals, or you can do slow cooker or rice cooker oatmeal with cinnamon and chopped apples or dried apples, right? There's still a lot of things that can go the distance budget wise, but they still taste good and that's okay if it's not if it's not what it was right it's okay if it's not a fresh stir fry every night and you know if you suddenly have kids at home and you know you don't have the time and I think we need to just be a little more forgiving you know maybe lower our expectations of every you know being the perfect perfect everything right now is is probably part of it as far as eating and it's okay if everything's not fresh. So smoothies right. are excellent. I mean, this is a really critical time for making sure you don't lose your muscle. And that's, it might sound silly that I'm saying critical, but it's true because we lose muscle really quickly compared to how hard it is to put it on. So it's already been a couple of weeks. And, you know, if you've kind of normally you've gotten out of your pattern, maybe you stopped exercising, maybe you, you're not doing your normal routine. I mean, one thing I would say is, you know, try to not forget about meeting daily protein needs, because again, that's important, having strength, having muscle. So if it means that you supplement with protein powder twice a day right now on top of your meals, like to me, that's totally worth it. 
like it's worth whatever it takes to kind of maintain some aspects of your health and your strength. And obviously you need exercise to maintain that muscle as well, but things like garbanzo beans, chickpeas, however you call them, they're so easy to work with. You can maybe make your own hummus for the first time. You literally just throw them in a food processor with a bit of lemon juice or, or garlic, which you can also buy in a jar of lemon juice or frozen garlic. So it's, it's realizing maybe sometimes that these things actually come frozen. You can buy packs of frozen garlic. So a lot of people, I think, don't even realize that. You can just buy a jar of lemon juice. You can buy like frozen chicken. You can buy you can buy almost frozen everything. So it's not that you have to live like that, but for for anyone who's really not wanting to get into a grocery store, right now here, you're 14 days behind if you want to order groceries. So I understand why people would, would move towards frozen food. And what if you are on a lockdown and you can't get out, you do have to be quarantined and you live by yourself, right? So there's all those factors. I think it's I think it's a bit of a comfort for people just to have that that food in the house and totally understand that. And what about on the um, the mind body side of you know yoga, meditation, sleep? This could be for athletes, but also for people just getting through <laughs> this period. What are your go tos or, or things that you've seen that have worked well? Well, I think all of those things that you just mentioned are going to help your immune system. So we just kind of talked about the nutrition, but I think, you know, that's something that there's a lot of myths out there right now on the immune system. Like there's, there's no magic pill. So when we think about everything we can do to maximize our health, like that includes sleep, that includes yoga, that includes nutrition. So it's kind of this culmination of all these small little actions we can take every day that are going to add up to health and our immune system. I think sleep is a big one right now. Um, a lot of people are, are probably going to bed with their phone and reading the news a lot more than they might normally. And I think it's important right now to, to make a commitment that you're going to leave your phone outside of your room. And I know that's hard even before this happened for some people, but you know, is it really serving you well? Is it keeping you up and impacting your sleep and no matter what you do to improve your health, when you start cutting back on your sleep, you're going to make all of those things less effective. So sleep is so huge and stress impacts sleep. So how can you, to me, I think it's important to make the place that you sleep just for sleeping, right? So even if, and that would go for anything, like if you live in a small space and you're suddenly working at your kitchen table and you're on your phone in your bedroom. I mean, all of those things kind of make one space no longer, I guess, isolated for one purpose. And I think the bedroom is really important like that. So I, as far as sleep, I think leaving your phone out of the bedroom, um, maybe trying one of these. Uh, now I'm going to say this, don't do it in your bedroom, maybe, because I was just going to say try an app for meditation. But what you could do is finish that meditation and then start scrolling on your phone. So maybe trying Headspace or Calm before you go upstairs to, to sleep. There's, there's probably lots of meditation apps. Do you use any meditation apps? Uh, I use Headspace, although I need to get it back. Uh, I was really good for two years and 
the last few years, um, I've been way more sporadic and, uh, and especially now I, I keep, it's one of those, it's a habit. It needs to become a habit again. So, yeah, um, I know what you it's, mean, but it, of any habit I've ever had, that was the best. So I need to get it back. Yeah, no, same here. I, I go in ebbs and flows, but I think it's a good way to start. If you never meditated, I think meditating that word is intimidating to people. And so it's a little easier when you have, and you can do it for three minutes, right? It's not like I'm saying, oh, meditate. You suddenly have to sit for 20 minutes. And so you turn that on for even three minutes just to try and focus your thoughts on the moment. I can really help with sleeping as well. Uh, yoga. I mean, what's amazing about yoga, and I've actually started in the last two weeks. I used to love yoga. I kind of stepped away from it. And this has brought me back to yoga. Now, I'm doing, um, there's a lot of free yoga online too. And I'm all for supporting paid programs as well, if you can afford it. But I'm loving Ariane Yoga, Yoga by Ariane, and then Eckert Yoga. So there's free videos. I mean, you can just do five minutes of one. You could do 10 minutes of one, or you could do an hour, right? But I think right now, one of my favorite books I've ever read is The Power of Now by Eckert Tolle. Have you read that? I haven't, but I've heard many people uh, mention it, so I need to. Yeah, it's. Uh, I read it when I was racing, and it was a game changer. So really, it's kind of about not letting your mind take over and your thoughts just run rampant because you're in the second that you're in, right? So literally, you're in the shower and you're actually feeling the water on your skin. Like, how often do we actually do that? We're just probably thinking while we're in the shower or we're thinking while we're, you know, cutting vegetables instead of just being there, like hearing the sound of your knife. So I think with yoga, that's what can be great about it. If you, if you try and let yourself just be in the movement in the moment, it's like being an athlete, you know, when you're in a criterium, I think they're so amazing because you don't have a lot of time to think. So you're just so present. You're moving up here you know you're not like daydreaming for the most part or you're probably off the back but with yoga it's just an opportunity to be present and right now I think that's probably a gift because it's really easy to get caught up in the uncertainty and the more we can not attach thoughts to what's happening and maybe a negative dialogue to what's happening I think the better off we are so sleeping, having yoga, definitely exercising. I think this is an important part right now. And I have a really good paper I could share with you after, but just this concept of exercise in the immune system, like, is it depressing your immune system or is it supportive? So generally speaking, if you're, you're not an athlete training two times a day and overreaching and, you know, not meeting your caloric needs I mean, exercise is good for your immune system. So of course there's there's always exceptions to that and there's some there's some great research out there showing that for an athlete on the other hand who's who is doing double days and um, back to back consecutive days that for sure there are there are nutritional things you can do to support your immune system the biggest one being eating carbohydrates but for the average person I mean we're just talking about what can we be doing now. I know it's hard. It's hard to exercise right now. Maybe some people like you mentioned are actually exercising more, but I'm going to say a lot of people aren't exercising as well because 
Totally. I mean, the, the I know what they're doing well is uh, the research I just saw was alcohol consumption in the Bay Area here where I am is up 44%. So. Wow, really? Yeah. Well, that's a huge deal. Uh, and that's interesting, right? No, because that's, that's... it goes exactly to what you were saying at the beginning. Yeah, and I, that would probably not be great for the immune system. I mean, I'm really attracted to this whole idea of uh, like bite-sized exercise right now. And I think because I'm guilty of this too right now, I'm sitting a lot right? Two summers ago, I went to town on reading research on continuous sitting. And I was floored that, you know, within 30, 60 minutes, like the negative metabolic impacts of just sitting, and how impactful it can be positively to stand up and move for three minutes. Now, I'm not talking about like three minutes of burpees. I just mean marching on the spot, doing some sideways lunges and just putting an alarm on. If you're sitting a lot, if you're for whatever reason, like just put your alarm on to beep every 45 minutes. If you have kids, like do it with them. If you don't just, I actually stand up and march in my office <laughs> when, when I'm just like, oh my gosh, I've been sitting for so long. So yeah, the movement is key, but it's probably more beneficial to do bite-sized movement all day. So it can be more intense than that for sure. So maybe you do five minutes of some movement with some intensity, but you do it 10 times a day versus doing one hour and sitting for 16. That's my uh, go-to is <laughs> do my one hour of exercise and then <laughs> stuck at my computer. So yeah, I agree. No, yeah, I'm guilty too. Like I did it yesterday. I was like, Hey, I'm going to ride my bike. And then I was like, Oh my gosh, I've been sitting so long. And so I, I keep, trying to put the alarm on and sometimes it goes off and I I'm focused and I work through it. So it's terrible, but, but yeah, I think those bite-sized movements, they add up. Think if you did like five, 10 minute workouts, I can't remember who it was. Ritual had uh, an ultra runner on one of his podcasts who did a 12 minute high intensity workout, like five times a day. And oh yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, that's amazing because you know, that really adds up and He's getting, I and mean, that's kind of what Dean Carnassus does. I had him on the show, and he works out throughout the day in bite sized. I mean, he does his long runs, but he's also doing stuff all day, yeah. Um, and I think that could really work if you do have kids at home too, because if you can't take like the hour, then geez, maybe they can somehow at least survive 12 minutes with you right there doing it or whatnot, but really. I mean, I think it comes back to that. It's all these little things that are going to add up. Like there, there's no, there's no magic bullet that's going to keep us healthy. So we're going to, we're going to focus on the basics. We're going to keep eating produce, right? So whether it's fresh or, or frozen, it's in smoothies, it's, you know, we're thinking about getting all the colors of the rainbow and as cheesy as that sounds, it's so true because every different color has different uh, types of nourishment in it. So if you think that way, it's it's important. So you're sleeping. I mean, you're creating that environment where your bedroom is only for sleep. Um, and then maybe trying some meditation or yoga before sleep or even in the morning. I caught myself rolling out of bed and checking CDC, like what's happening with, you know, the virus today. I was like, hey, that's got to stop. That is just not a good way <laughs> to start my day. So yeah, it's much better to just roll in bed if you can. And you might laugh, but I actually think a minute of meditation is impactful. 
Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, my thing on meditation is that it's like anything where you have to commit. And even if you're committing just to do a little bit, if you do it for 30 days at the beginning, you won't notice much, but by the end of 30 days, you'll see a difference. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think your brain is a muscle. You need to build it. Oh, for sure. And for some people, you know, it really depends who it is, but for some people, calendars on the fridge really work for this type of stuff because it's a type of feedback. So if you're that type of person that likes something that you look at, so you, every day you do that for one minute, you give yourself a green check mark, and then you look at it at the end of the week and you have four green check marks. For some people, it depends on the type of person you are, that's actually motivating. So you're, you're working towards doing it, let's say five times a week, same thing for exercise, you know? So, okay. I have like, Oh good. I did, you know, 50 minutes of exercise five times last week. That's good. I can see that. And there, there could be something positive about that. And then even creating, like creating the environment for it. Like maybe you live in a small space and it's, it's kind of annoying to, to exercise somehow. It's like, Oh, where are you going to go? So maybe literally physically choosing like an area within that space where you're exercise, that's your exercise area. And then trying to somehow, you know, create an environment for, for some positive exercise. But yeah, I mean, it's, that makes sense for the athletes listening. Um, and we have a lot of like endurance athletes on pro kit. So the, getting a little bit more into the sports nutrition and performance side of, of things. So, and I'm not even sure where to start on this, but maybe just we'll start with, with the people doing the events are canceled, but pretend events. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let's, let's pretend that you, which I have seen some fun um, people like inventing their own marathons or their own, you know, they had a 5k or their, their gravel race that they're now doing solo. So people are still out there. So, and you can ch- change how I should set this question up. But the, for me, I always think about like nutrition overall. And I think about like before the, you know, the days leading up to a, an event, the morning of, during, after, like, um, you know, we could do a scenario of a short, you know, you've got like a short event, like a 5k or a cycle cross race, something that's like 30 to 60 minutes all out or the, the longer, longer stuff. Talk about how you, maybe some best practices for people Mm -hmm. who have, have read like me, read everything. And they're just trying to understand like, what should I actually be thinking about here? Yeah. I mean, I think like the context is so important. So are you, are you doing a bunch of events or let's say it's cross season. So I mean, the one thing, like you said, is overall. So overall, if you know, you're training, a lot of these things tend to go on how many hours a week are you training? And then how hard is that training? Right? So if you're training a certain amount of hours, like you might have a carbohydrate intake, that's anywhere between five to eight grams per kilogram of body weight, right? So let's say you're training one to two hours a day. I mean, it really is dependent on the duration and intensity, but if you're heading into, let's just be really specific with a cross race. So as far as day of, I mean, the day before a cross race is what, 40 minutes to an hour. So if that's the intensity and duration of the type of event you're going to do, you don't have to carb load the day before something like that, right? So you definitely want to have optimal 
carbohydrate intake. And you would practice that to know. So you wouldn't just look at a piece of paper and say, oh, that said I should eat eight grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight the day before. And then you just go do that for the first time ever. And then you have major gut rot, right? So what I would always say is if you have an event coming, mimic it in training, right? So the day before, or let's just put aside and assume that your daily nutrition is pretty good. You have a good foundation, right? So you're not going into your event completely depleted with terrible nutrition. So assuming that, so let's say the day before an, an event that's an hour and intense, you determined through practice that you do really well if you consume like six grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight. You have a base of like 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, and maybe 20 to 30% of your diet is you know good fats or, or just fat in general. So, I mean, I think it's important that, and this is why I love journaling. If you can make a day that you repeat before a lot of races, then your life becomes a lot easier because you then have a similar pre-race day routine to go to versus every single time you're kind of thinking because you've not memorized what's in every food you eat, right? Like I have that in my head because I've been doing it so long, but Generally, someone doesn't just know that. So you make yourself kind of a pre-race day and then the morning comes and then I mean, everything again is going to be in context to the time, right? So let's assume you're not racing the moment you roll out of bed. So you're racing at noon. So I like to say go backwards from race time. So if you're racing at noon, I would typically say to someone, okay, let's go backwards three to four hours. And that's when your last full meal is going to be. Now, again, we're practicing this during a mock training session, right? So you've already done this in training. It's not the first time you've done it. You've done it for a couple of training sessions and you're like, oh yeah, that worked really well for me. So that's what I'm gonna do on race day. So you have that meal, it's a normal meal. By that, I mean, it still has 20 to 30 grams of protein and you know, it's probably lower in fiber, um, not as high in fat. And that's mainly just to ease the digestion a little bit. So you're not having a super high fiber fat meal because it'll digest a little more quickly, but you have three to four hours, which is a normal amount of time to digest a meal. So typically people might start to get hungry if you've eaten three to four hours ago and now you're racing, but that's fine. So if you only have an hour to go and you're warming up, then you're focused mostly on easy to digest carbohydrates at that time. So maybe you're having a sports drink, you're having a banana, you know, you're having some chews or, or dates. And again, that's something you would have wanted to experiment with in training. So I never would want someone to try a new food on race day. So not in the meal before, not in the hour before, it's not the time to try the new sushi spot. You should know that this works for me. Um, and then really as re there's no difference. And if you think about it between eating a banana in your hour before the race or during the race, right? So that kind of tells you it's an appropriate food. Whereas you're not going to be eating boiled eggs like half an hour before the race because they're actually not going to do anything for your performance. So I like to split it up into performance nutrition in the three to four hours before a race, like this is performance nutrition the hour before a race really becomes performance nutrition because what you do in that hour could positively impact your race still. 
or it could not positively impact your race. So if you have three chicken breasts an hour before the race, I mean, that's not a great idea. It's going to be sitting heavy in your stomach. You're not going to digest it. You're compromising blood flow to muscles and digestion. So it does matter what you're eating. And that kind of system that I just explained would actually work just as well for a road race or, or a longer endurance race as well. So really, it's about the last main meal working backwards from race time. And if your race is at eight in the morning, I would just switch up that strategy to, let's say, if you want to stick with the hour event. So again, you've practiced this. And I actually would have an athlete practice it just like the race. So if you told me your race, your running race was at 8am, I would say to you a couple of weeks before the race, let's pretend it's race day. And I want you to eat this a day before the race and you'll have decided what foods you like. And we'll obviously have talked about that. And then, well, if it's a longer duration race, then we would be increasing the carbohydrate intake. If it wasn't very long, we would bring it down. And then you would literally roll out of bed. And if you only had an hour, then you'd be more focused on, sure, you might, you'd still have some protein in there, but mostly easy to digest carbohydrates, low fat, low fiber, so that and so do you still, on those, because that's actually happened a lot for races I've done. They're super early in the morning. Yeah. Um, do you wake up at five to have a meal three hours before, or do you just have the hour before? It depends on the race. Like if you're doing a one hour race, I would say sleep, sleep. Yeah. I mean, you're probably going to be up anyways. You're not going to show up at the, the race, like rushed and stressed out. So chances are you're going to be up two hours before the race. I mean, it's pretty, a, a group ride, maybe you roll out of bed, but I would think most people are probably going to be up with a little bit of time. So when you sleep overnight, you might burn approximately 400 calories of liver glycogen. So you, you know, can replenish some carbohydrates in the morning and really you could just go for it because you've had a good pre-race day, right? So you're not waking up glycogen depleted you rested the day before the race, so you didn't deplete as much glycogen as you would have if you were training. Maybe you did some openers. And then if it's a longer race, you know, if it was an Ironman, I would probably sacrifice a little bit of sleep to, to make sure I got a pretty big carbohydrate breakfast in. So, you know, depending on the person, it could be 150 grams of carbohydrates. But, I mean, that also depends on how fast you're doing the Ironman. Are you doing it in 13 hours or are you doing it in eight? Because those are two different events, right? I think we probably have a lot of listeners in kind of the gravel and ultra gravel cycling and ultra running worlds. Um, some of these are like multi-day, you know, 10 hours a day. But also, I think on average, you could say for the people doing a four to five hour running race or gravel race, you see a lot of people and this happened to me. I mean, you end up with a upset stomach that that's the thing that knocks you out or, or you bonk. Um, so what, what are you thinking about during a longer race like that? Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between a four hour race and an ultra. So yeah. if we talk about a four hour race, I mean, the gut rut could be a lot of things. It could be the heat. Uh, it could be the fact that you know, and this is actually quite common. And I notice it a lot in masters athletes that they're on a lower carbohydrate diet day to day, and then they carb load for the race. 
And so you can actually train your gut. You can train your gut to absorb more carbohydrates. And so there's one study a couple of years back, uh, they did like a two week gut challenge for runners and the runners did a high carbohydrate diet for two weeks and then the other group didn't. And then they compared their GI upset and it was significant. Like the decrease in GI upset from doing the high carbohydrate diet because you literally train your gut to absorb more carbohydrates. On the other hand, if you are always on this semi-low carbohydrate diet and then all of a sudden you consume eight or nine grams per kilogram of carbohydrates a day before a race, you're probably going to pay for that. (laughs) So I think that that's actually common Um, as well. You know, maybe someone is not hydrating, they're eating too much while racing or the heat is building up in the intestines over the duration of the race, which can also cause gut rut. I think a lot of it is, is just that the, the gut's often not trained as well. Um, and then fructose. So a lot of people don't, I think it's around, around 30% of athletes don't tolerate fructose as well. So if you're trying to figure out what's happening to you, like why are you having gut rut, you might want to look in your products and and do a little experiment with that as well, like using products that don't have fructose in them. Um, the other thing is eating too close to your training. And it's a, so many people have a big breakfast and go out on a group ride on Saturday mornings. Like this is really common. And then they'll say to me, I started feeling good like two hours in. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I mean, your stomach was so full. Like you would probably feel quite sluggish. And that, you know, you're you're now compromising your digestion. So maybe you even have a really bad stomach when you get home from the ride um, and you're really gassy and, and struggle with that after because you eat so close to the ride. So it really matters what you eat if you're going to eat close to the ride. And again, kind of like three to four hours, that's great. You probably digest most things, but if you're rolling out the door in 90 minutes, um, not so much. And then during I mean, it depends if you're in a four hour like race. So when I think race, like you're pushing your limits, you're definitely going to be in that range of like 60 plus grams of carbohydrates per hour. And a lot of people just don't. And that's when they fizzle. Like if you think about it in 90 minutes of hard, intense work, you can deplete all of your carbo- glycogen stores. So glycogen is stored carbohydrate. So if you go into an event, not fully, not fully, but without appropriate glycogen stores. And then you're also not consuming enough during the event. I mean, you're going to be in trouble in like two hours, probably. So what I like to say is early and often, if you're going into a four hour event, you should be already eating and drinking carbohydrates at 30 minutes because you're, you're doing that for the two, three, four hour mark. So you can't wait until that point when you're racing. And I see that in group rides and I realize a group ride is not a race, but you do like a four hour group ride and people wouldn't eat until we got to the coffee shop. And then we get to the coffee shop and they would have like a brownie, right? Which really is more of a high fat thing. It's not like a high carbohydrate. And then, you know, if I think back to group rides where I was not the fittest person there, but I was eating properly. So people are pinging off the back at three and a half hours, not because they're not fit. They've just hit the wall because they waited till two and a half hours in, had a coffee and a brownie, and then they just don't have the glycogen for the high intensity on the way home. 
So the same with racing, I think early and often is a good thing to keep in your head that, you know, really you want me to start like eating 30 minutes in? Absolutely. If it's four hours long, I mean, you have to think of the long game there. And again, you are focused on carbohydrates for, for an event of that duration. So it's not, you know, it's not really the time for high fat food. It's, it's all about easy digestion and you want that sugar to be accessible and I hear a lot of people on social media be like, you shouldn't be eating sugar. You know, you're going to spike your insulin. No, that's what you need. Like when you're racing for three to four hours. So yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and then on, and it sounds like from what you're saying, the, the carb is the most important thing rather than in finding what works for you. So it could be a gel or could be, maple syrup or it could be a banana um and if you've tested it and it works well for you and has the right carb structure then that's okay absolutely and i think that that's a good point because a lot of people will look at what someone else is doing but you can't really do that like imagine you and i went riding right now and i'm admittedly not in good riding shape so and let's just say you're in awesome shape i'm not in awesome shape riding beside each other let's assume we weigh the same I mean, I'm not in great shape, so I'm probably going to eat more than you. If you're super efficient right now and you're in good shape, like you probably don't need to eat as many carbohydrates as I do. So it's not a great idea to just look at what your friends are doing riding because they're not you. You don't know what they ate the day before. Maybe you are completely depleted. You barely ate yesterday. You had a coffee this morning and you better be eating because you're going to be in trouble soon. Whereas you completely prepared for this group ride, you had a great breakfast, you gave yourself some time and you're doing great. You know, you, you, you're very fit. You're not going to need to eat as much as me. So if I looked at you and did what you did in my scenario, I am going to blow up really soon. So you don't know what everyone else is doing. Right. But absolutely what works for you. I love potatoes, Mm. by the way, on the bike. They're amazing. Good. And what about the, what are the pros using? What are the secrets? What are the, you know, you, there's all these, the magic pills that you see everywhere, but, um, (laughs) the, what are the couple things, whether in foods or things you can get naturally that you've seen or that the science backs up that actually work and that are safe? Yeah. I mean, I would say food first for sure. So I think a lot of people just haven't even mastered the foundation of a healthy diet. So that would be the priority before, before supplements. Now, barring, you know, you live in Canada, you're taking your vitamin D, or if you have any iron deficiency or, you know, that that's different taking your daily calcium. So if we're talking about performance, definitely food first, but then as far as Supplements that actually have, I would say, a good amount of evidence behind them, Uh, creatine, caffeine, uh, beet juice, and then beta alanine and sodium bicarbonate. And actually, the IOC has a consensus statement on supplements that have adequate or good data behind them. And creatine is definitely top of the list there and caffeine. So if you're doing explosive type exercise, uh, you know, 10 second ish, like doing criteriums or, or I've even seen, uh, there was one study I think by John Hawley in, uh, in Australia, 
that was looking at creating at the end of a long 120 kilometer uh, mimicked road race. So that's actually new and novel. So there's not a lot of data there, but uh, they did actually have a, like a higher power for the sprint, but mostly it's for explosive stuff. So I would assume a lot of pros are using creatine, um, especially even on the track. Uh, caffeine. So, I mean, caffeine is, you know, the most widely used drug in the world and everybody loves it. So, yeah, I mean, I'd be shocked if a lot of elite cyclists aren't using caffeine. But I think I have to say that I wouldn't necessarily apply everything you read a professional athlete doing to the average athlete because they're doing some extreme training. So even when you see some of the methods they might use in the off season for training, I mean, they're not always applicable to someone who's going to do a 90 minute race because these guys are training for 10 day races and 20 day races and a master's athlete is going to have to do all that intensity, probably a lot of the year round. Whereas, you know, if you're a professional athlete, that's different. So I would say they're, they're taking creatine, maybe depending on the event, right? And there should be a checklist. When you, when you think that you want to take a supplement, I mean, the first thing you would ask, are you doing everything to maximize your nutrition? If the answer is yes, is this supplement, you know, can it help me? Can it help me in the specific type of event that I'm going to do? Um, is it safe? Have I used it in training without side effects? And is the risk of contamination that will always exist worth it, right? So I would go through a series of questions before you just start popping supplements. Like it's going to be the cherry on top, right? But the cake is the nutrition. So it's a marginal gain. And when you're racing against the best of the best, a marginal gain can make a difference, right? If you're not even maximizing your, your nutrition, like, is that marginal gain? Is it really worth it? And that's, that's a question I would, I would always ask as far as the beet juice. I mean, that's something you can do with nutrition too. So it's the nitrates in the beet juice that have a lot of, well, have evidence mostly in intermittent sports. So let's say soccer criteriums of longer duration so, I mean, there are other foods with nitrates in them as well. So if you're, if you're consuming a lot of vegetables, like it doesn't have to be beets, but of course you can always um, get beetroot supplements, right? But those are the, the five supplements that actually have good data behind them. Now, not to say that there aren't other supplements that have decent data as far as health, right? So maybe probiotics can help with reducing GI infections or immune support. I mean, there's not a lot of magic pills as far as immunity. Unfortunately, the internet would have us think otherwise these days, but um, maybe zinc could actually support like an elite athlete during big racing blocks for immune support. And if you were training that much, like that would be a scenario or maybe you'd have zinc lozenges and vitamin C. But for the average person, if you're, if you have a good, well-rounded diet, like you should be able to get a lot of everything that you need from food. Right. And now let's talk a little bit about, um, weight. Cause there's like two sides to it. There's the super extreme athlete who is maybe running way too lean 
or who has body image issues or a whole set of unique things to the extreme side of a sport. And then there's the, the everyday athlete who's just trying to be healthy and maybe they are trying to lose weight because it's helps them with their sport or because they need to for their health. Let's look a little bit at the everyday person who is trying to manage their weight. Um, you know, I, how do you think about that? So the, the habit change or, you know, what are you, what are you looking at there? Oh gosh, I'm so much more into the athlete. <laughs> no offense, no offense to the everyday person, but honestly, well, no, I'm, I'm talking about the every, <laughs> let's look at the everyday athlete okay. who is not, cause we should get into it too. But if you're not the pro athlete who might be running at a deficit, which is causing all sorts of other problems, yeah. um, which is a very, that's a unique group. Like let's assume you're the everyday athlete who just wants to stay healthy and hopefully not keep putting on pounds as we get older. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. I think the first thing I would say is there's a lot of ways to get from A to B. Like if you're going to start talking about diets, I mean, a lot of times it's about how much energy you're taking in and how much you're expending. But I would say for the everyday athlete, I mean, I would, I would definitely never ignore resistance training. Um, So your body composition versus just your body weight and making sure that you're putting on and maintaining muscle mass and especially in endurance sports. I think a lot of athletes just get so obsessed with putting in the miles and the time that they neglect the, the resistance training part of it, which, which can really improve your body composition. And if you're, you know, if you're thinking about your aesthetics and who are we kidding? Most people think about their aesthetics. I mean, putting on muscles actually aesthetically probably going to look better as well, right? So you're decreasing your body fat, increasing lean body mass, but maybe still keeping the same body weight. And I think that just gets missed so much. But as far as like nutrition, I think you really need to pay attention. And that's just it. I think, you know, it takes some attention and you need to fuel for the work that you're doing. So, and, and that you're not doing. So if you're taking two days easy, you shouldn't actually just be eating the same as you did on the day where you rode for five hours, right? So it's, it's kind of adjusting based on the work that you're going to do. And I think people kind of forget about the whole notion of like high volume foods on, on easier days. And it's something that I use with a lot of athletes who maybe are on an easy week or you know, you you get used to eating so much as an athlete that let's say right now, suddenly your volume of training drops because of this pandemic that we're in. Um, You know, it's, it's a great idea to really start learning about high volume foods. And what I mean by that is if you took a cantaloupe and it was 200 calories, or you took a tablespoon and a half of olive oil would be approximately 200 calories as well. Like just look at those, right? So when you can learn the foods that are high volume, like the cantaloupe, but also high nutrient density, I mean, those come in really handy if you're trying to manage your weight. So on the days where you're not doing as much work. So another example of a high volume food would be spaghetti pasta versus pasta. So one cup of pasta has the same amount of calories of four cups of spaghetti pasta. 
So maybe you have two and a half cups of spaghetti pasta and now calorically you've reduced your intake because you're not training as much that day, but you're still feeling satiated. Like you're not starving yourself. And that's, that's important because if someone wants to kind of go with the ebbs and flows of their training, but they're kind of eating those calorie dense foods, then it's difficult to do without feeling hungry. So for someone that's trying to really manage that, and I think those types of foods make a big difference and maybe starting to pay attention to, okay. And that's why fruits and vegetables are so important in managing weight. Like nobody's overeating broccoli, right? Right. Right. But, yeah. but if we did, like, I think like as a nation, there'd be a lot. Probably- yeah. Well, that, what you just, that, example that you painted um i've seen you know you could do the amount of like spinach that would need to be piled up to have the same calories as like your tablespoon of peanut butter right those like examples where it helps you understand in your head um how much other types of food you could eat yeah and i think that i mean i remember doing once like a 1800 calorie like side by side visual for someone and then they tried it they couldn't even finish the 1800 calorie that I made versus the one that they were eating before. And that literally, that was the response. I can't eat all of this. So, you know, on the flip side, you have an athlete who maybe should be eating the more calorically dense, right? Because they need more calories. And so, as you were saying earlier, it might be, might be a minority, but I don't really think it is a minority of elite athletes who aren't meeting caloric needs yet. They're almost sometimes eating, I don't want to say too much healthy food, but they could use some more calorie dense food, right? Because it's literally just not calorically dense enough for the 4,000 calories they're expending per day or more. Yeah, that makes sense. And let's talk about the elite side. Um, yeah, because maybe it's, there's probably people in the everyday athlete side who fall into this too, who aren't fueling properly or enough for their body type. And I like there's the body image stuff. There's disordered eating piece. There's actual performance concerns of not having enough nutrients that affect you over time. So I don't know what keeps you up at night there. What (laughs) parts are you (laughs) all of the above? No, I'm a good sleeper. Thank God. But um, (laughs) no offense to everyone that I'm not like staying up at night thinking about them. But um, yeah, I just, it's so common. I mean, obviously we're, we're referring kind of to the relative energy deficiency in sport, but I mean, obviously there's different levels of that. And some people might be doing that for a day or two, but it is really common that even, you know, the masters or the elite level that people under eat compared to the amount of energy they're expending, which really the negative impact there is that you're not left with enough calories to run your body and meet all your other physiological needs, which takes like 70% of your energy. Even if you just sat around and did hardly anything all day, I mean, your body needs to sustain itself and function. So there's so many uh, downfalls to that. And especially more so when it's chronic, Uh, not that they don't kick in right away, especially hormonally, but when they're chronic is when it becomes more of a problem. And like you said, performance wise, uh, bone wise, mood wise, uh, muscle wise, so body composition wise, I mean, it's, it's pretty far reaching. Um, we could do, we could do a whole hour on reds. Maybe we, 
maybe we'll do that someday. But, but yeah, I think it's, it's something that is common, actually, just from I've seen a lot of food journals. And I've seen triathletes burning 5000 calories a day eating too. right, you don't even need a calculator to know that there's, there's just not enough left to, to keep all of your body functioning optimally. And people will sustain that, right, for a long time, but not without consequence. Like we don't, for example, no one's ever... And what are some of those consequences to watch for? Because a lot of people have never even heard of this, but maybe they're victims of it, right? What are, the, what are the things, if you're running at a deficit and you're not getting enough calories, you're training for a big event and you just doubled your training load out of nowhere for a few months and what what are some things you'd watch for uh definitely like a training plateau you're just not improving um more injuries or nagging injuries that you you just can't seem to get rid of um you're not going to see your bones and uh <laughs> so that one you're you're not going to see but I, it's definitely probably happening that your bone mineral density is slowly you know, not decreasing, that takes a long time, but it's not positive for your bones, uh, your mood, right? So you could certainly have negative impacts psychologically. Um, and I mean, if you if you notice patterns of, you know, you're just having an amazing day on Tuesday, and you can barely train on Thursday, your legs are just empty, they're gone. I mean, you're up and down and all over the place. And there's a lack of inconsistency. I mean, that's often a pretty reflective of especially low carbohydrate intake and something that when I say that to people when we first meet so many people say oh that's me right and it's it's a real aha moment that oh that's because I'm not eating enough and it's like yeah I mean if you and the beauty of this is that you can turn it around right now you can't necessarily turn around let's say the impact on bone quickly but of course you could work on it um, for women, you're going to see, you know, with women, it's a little easier sometimes because you have menstruation that can disappear. So that's kind of that signal that men don't have. And it's important to note that this is just not just about women, right? So there's a lot of guys out there who are also not meeting their energy needs. Um, but, you know, it, it's all these little things that you would probably start to make a pie chart and say, okay, like, am I noticing that, you know, my, my mental state is not quite where it used to be. And am I noticing I'm kind of flat, um, I getting nagging injuries, I'm not recovering as well. Um, I mean, there's so many little factors, and it's, you know, it's something that I think you should see a medical doctor and you should get your blood tested and check your hormones and all those things. And instead of just saying like, Oh, I have reds, right? Because we don't know if something else isn't going on or, you know, this could impact your thyroid and hormones. And, and that's the estrogen factor can impact your, your period. And then of course your bones as well. So it's, you know, I think it takes some investigation in that case, you really want to work with the team of people before you just kind of stamp yourself with energy deficiency. But a really good way to do it is, is again, like take that food journal you're probably using training peaks. You're probably using Strava. You can get, even though it's, it's not going to be um, completely accurate how much you're expending, but you're in the ballpark, right? So then you take your food journal, same thing. It's not going to be completely accurate, but it's in the ballpark. 
And so I think the easiest thing, if you're not working with anyone, is literally look at what are you taking in and what are you expending and how much is left, right? Since we're not going to be like measuring the thermic effect of food and all these other things. So what's your basal metabolic rate? You know, do you need approximately 1700 calories left to run your body? Okay, is that left? Like, do you only have 500 calories left when you do that subtraction? And if you do, then it's a bit of a aha moment Mm. that you should look at. Now, I would say that the exception would be if you're working with someone and you, you know how to periodize your nutrition and, you know, you're a racer with a couple peak races in the year and maybe you're a little heavier in the off season and you're purposely leaning out acutely for a race. I mean, done properly. I mean, it's going to be done at the elite level, right? That's probably depending on the sport, but you know, that's a little bit different and there's not a ton of data to, to give us much about that, but there's one um, Trent Stellingworth has data on his wife for nine years of periodizing nutrition. She's an elite runner. So that's really interesting to read. I mean, that's, that's a little bit different than what I see happening at like the master's level is just people just chronically running like a low level of energy. And there's, there's been quite a few studies now with men, male cyclists that are osteoporotic. I mean, the elite pro men's Peloton, you know, there's some low bone mineral density going on there for sure. It's not surprising, right? You just have to take a look at the low body fat and Obviously, right. you're expending probably five, six, seven thousand calories on some of those races. See, that's insidious, right? It's one of those things that some of the outcomes are going to take time to show up. And it's not that you won't live, but you're you're not going to be performing as healthily, mentally, or physically as an athlete. Yeah. And really your body composition will be better if you meet your energy needs. And people are surprised by that. But if you think about it, if you're always not meeting energy needs, then that means you can't be optimizing your lean body mass because you need enough energy to make muscle and keep muscle. So you're actually putting your body composition, you know, at a disadvantage. You're better off meeting your energy needs and you'll actually maintain your muscle that way. Yeah. So much more. We're going to have to do an, another episode. Yeah, <laughs> reds can definitely be like yeah. an hour. Now, There's a lot more detail. Um, but So just to wrap up, what's next for you in COVID-19? <laughs> um, home, <laughs> the makeshift quarantines that we're all in. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I, like I said, the first week and a half, I was kind of really disheveled and stress probably like everyone else and now I just feel like I've settled into this new version of life for now Um, but yeah I was originally going to be starting some research on bone health and cyclists uh, about four weeks from now but considering I need cyclists in the lab breathing really hard uh, pretty sure that's not going to happen anytime (laughs) soon so yeah at first I might have stressed about that for a day or two but but it is what it is I don't know what will change there right Um, So right now I'm finishing some coursework. Uh, I'm not really sure how it will go with the masters. So in that case, I'll probably uh, ramp up my business a little bit more for the summer if the case is that we're unable to go to university and uh, 
Yeah, I've had a lot of athletes actually have had to say no to working with since September because of school. So yeah, who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe I'll maybe it will get dive back in there yeah. and yeah, as far as the future, yeah, I have no idea. I think I said to you once that yeah, just look for open doors and the reason I went back to school was was to do something a little bit different. I just don't know what it is yet. So yeah, I'm always open. I don't have an answer right. really. <laughs> Very good. And and other than ProKit, where you have some awesome collections and content, where can people find you? Uh, probably on Twitter. I'm actually not doing a lot on my website right now, but um, any writing I'm doing actually is going on ProKit. So I actually have a part one series of reds that I'm probably going to post in the next day or two. So on Twitter, I'm at Guzman Nutrition. And my website is nsag.ca, but uh, I don't have a lot of uh, written articles there. Most of everything I'm sharing is actually through the Pro Kit. So like you said, the, the collections there and hopefully start doing some more writing there as well. And my Instagram, I mean, it's more about uh, lately the stories, just things that people can make at home with minimal ingredients and trying to share some cooking ideas. So a little bit of a different approach on Instagram. Hopefully I can give people some practical ideas for. All right. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes, <laughs> but um, thank you very much for sharing all of your insights and all that you do. Yeah. And thanks for starting ProKit. I mean, I think it's amazing. And what I love is that you have such a huge female contingent on there of athletes, which is really amazing. And honestly, there, there isn't that go-to place for, for everything to do with like quality knowledge. So I think, I think you have something awesome going on. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, lots more. We'll have to do a whole separate one on the female athlete too. Oh, for sure. Hey, good luck with everything right now. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the common threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com. <laughs>